Michael Harmon is a executive advisor and consulting partner at Harmon Consulting. And today we're going to talk about commercializing medical diagnostics. We talked about this a little bit. I think I connected you with somebody. Um, Michael, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Good afternoon. Thank you for that introduction, Chris. I'm excited to be here. And thank you for asking about diagnostics. This is one of my favorite topics to discuss and something that I have a great deal of experience with. Oh, nice. So one thing, I mean, that we've never talked about on any of my podcasts, we've talked about the challenges of getting diagnostics approved and paid for. We've talked about a little bit, I think, with uh, Derek Hamry, who you met, right? That's the person mm -hmm. that, um, that you've connected with about sort of delivering the, the final things. But we've never talked about the process of engineering a diagnostic. So what does that workflow look like from discovery all the way to the product that goes into the box? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the challenge here really lies in successfully transitioning the technology you've developed from a laboratory benchtop assay into something that can reliably provide clinical insights to the patients and their clinicians. So the process of concepting, prototyping, and feasibility is really well-defined uh, and expensive, ultimately leading to the definition of your minimally viable product that will be launched into the market. And this is where I like to get involved and help liaison my clients through the process. You're helping your clients through the process, so, but what, what does it look like? What does the workflow look like? Um to make yes. that happen. Traditionally, the technology is developed in an academic or medical center laboratory. Um, and then a you know gap in our healthcare system is identified. And that technology is then developed into a diagnostic and launched out to provide insights to the patients and clients. The process itself typically begins with concept generation, um, things called technology scouting, where you need to go out and find what technologies you would need to develop that product. Um, and then you go through obviously several rounds of prototyping and feasibility and refinement. Um, it's generally a five-step process, starting with concepting through to commercial launch and post-market surveillance. Um, the process itself involves a lot of different disciplines. Um, a lot of times industrial designers help out. And then obviously there's electrical and mechanical engineering and all of the core disciplines surrounding that, right? Sales, distribution, um, marketing, all of the different aspects really get involved in the development. Um, and a lot of times you want to try and leverage existing technologies as much as possible. That obviously shortens your path to market and de-risks. Um, but also in many cases, you you know, you want to innovate and bring something exciting new to the market. And that brings more risk, but is potentially more exciting for the clinicians as well as the developers. Talk about the, um, there's a bunch of questions in there. Um, before I forget them, I'll, I want to talk about the electrical engin electrical engineering, but also even before that, yeah. um, technology scouting. Like, So you have yeah. an idea of what you would like to make, and then you're asking what kinds of technologies will it take to make that thing happen? Yeah. So the way we usually go about it is we start with concepting. So what we'll do is break down the challenge into very specific pieces. So rather than approach the whole problem at once, break it down into subsystems and then identify kind of what technology you would need to build that subsystem. 
And the ideal thing is, like I said, through technology scouting, you can find, you know, liquid handlers, for example, or heating elements, different things that are, you know, standard to diagnostic equipment. And you can figure out how those kind of build together like Lego pieces to ultimately build the system that you want overall. That's a really key part of the process is that technology scouting. Um, oftentimes, there's going to be certain areas that you need to design something new. That's what's exciting for someone like me. <laughs> um, but ultimately brings on more risk, right? You're developing something that doesn't exist yet and may or may not be feasible. So ideally, throughout the process, you're going to find you know, enabling technologies that exist. Um, you may need to license them from someone, ideally not. Um, um, but the way we go about it is we kind of, like I said, create those subsystems. We identify which ones are foundational, which ones basically, what, what cannot be touched, right? What is so critical to that technology that it should not be changed in any way? And some of those things are just foundational. They are the way they are, and you have to build that in. Alternatively, there's usually some things around that. Usually the way things are integrated together, there's opportunity to come up with something new. So I mentioned earlier liquid handling and heating elements, right? Maybe there's something unique about the way you move your fluid between those heated environments, and that offers you an opportunity to make something unique. Um, but in most cases, you know, you'd rather find something that exists and kind of plug it together, and that's how you develop. So, and then the subsystems build together, right? Until you ultimately reach design controls, and then you come to a completed system. You run through feasibility studies, verification, validation, and then typically there's some sort of regulatory path you have to address, um, and then you're ready to launch it out and get it to clinics, laboratories, clinicians, whatever you need in the market to launch. Right. So let's back up to those. Um, and maybe this is where the electrical engineering part comes in. So when I think of diagnostics, I, of course, I'm sure I do not have a complete picture. But I think of things from swab tests, which end up going to a PCR or an ELISA or some kind of simple thing. We know more than simple, you think. Yes. <laughs> simple in quotes. Or, you know, cholesterol or other blood tests where there's a giant analyzer and thousands of tubes are going through in a day. Mm -hmm. Right. What, what's That's the middle like ground? Because it sounds like you're talking about developing perhaps a, a smaller machine, I would call it, that's somewhere between a swab, which does get, you know, there's a downstream process of that, of course. Yeah. And you it know, is so. a very interesting question, Chris, because there's a lot of market uh, forces that kind of set those trends. So when I first got involved in diagnostics development five or six years ago, point of care was everything. Everything was what you just said, small instrument that's at the point of care in the clinic. And that was what everybody wanted. So we were developing a lot of microfluidic cartridges, which is probably what you talked to Derek about, right? They would take a sample in, run it through some process and you put it in a little instrument that runs a test and spits out an answer to the clinician. That would be a point of care instrument, um, which you mentioned right. previously that is more like a centralized laboratory yeah, instrument, which is more what I think thousands about. of samples a day. Um, those can be literally the size of an entire room. They can be gigantic yeah. and run millions of samples. I have personally less experience with that, to be honest with you. But again, it depends on market trends. I think 20 years ago, that was what everybody was doing. And then, you know, as, Medicine has gotten more personalized over the past 20 years. 
things have shrunk and they're trying to get things out of the central line, right? More really at the point of where the patient is. So can you bring it bedside? Or even now, I would say with COVID, we all have, you know, rapid COVID tests in our cabinet at home right now. What have you ever in your life executed a diagnostic at home without a clinician present, right? That is a complete right. change in the way we think about diagnostics. And that was a huge emergence that would not have happened if it were not for COVID. So to your question, there are a lot of different types of diagnostics, and it really depends on what the market opportunity is that you're trying to address in terms of which path you would go down. Um, the process is still pretty similar. Ultimately, you're just focused on different technologies. So to your point, you know, a lot of what we're seeing now are these swab tests, right? Lateral flow assays, which I'm sure you talked to Derek a lot about because they specialize, um, right? Where you take a drop of some biosamples, whether it's saliva, blood, um, even I've seen now breast cancer tests using tears. So there are all sorts of new kind of, yeah, biofluids that are being used for testing. Um, one that I'm personally involved with is for testing endometriosis state in uh, female patients, which traditionally requires invasive surgery to test. And now you can take a swab test and actually do the same thing we were just talking about. Run it through an analyzer, look at a molecular signature and understand, does this patient have endometriosis? Which, like I said, traditionally you had to actually open the patient up and look laparoscopically, which brings on a whole set of other challenges. Right. I didn't think that I would have two episodes in one year that brought up endometriosis, but I'm starting to get an appreciation for kind of one, how hard that is and the impact and kind of it's a big yeah, yeah, deal. I, 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 mean, I obviously I work in this field. I had no idea what a, wouldn't, what a challenge that was until I got involved with it. So the fact that they're now going to be able to offer a non-invasive test at Hero Biotech um, is phenomenal. And another one, we're going to go into more on this later in the talk, but there are several other technologies very similar that are offering non-invasive testing to extreme challenges in the healthcare field. Can you talk about the market for point-of-care testing? So the first thing that occurs to me is it seems much more efficient to collect a sample in one place and send them all to a single device to be analyzed as opposed to making lots of small analyzers that are going into every clinic. But obviously there's there's value there or it wouldn't be happening. So how does how do you figure that out? Right. Yeah. So again, there's a lot of different market trends, right? Driving that in terms of reimbursement has a lot to do with it. Reimbursement codes, um, as well as nowadays, just having access, right? Getting the patient and the technology in the same location so that you can run the test. I mean, we think about America here where we all have access to clinics. We can go, you know, we can go to our primary care. We can go to the hospital. The rest of the world doesn't have that access. So having, you know, testing that can go to the actual point of need is a huge plus for those types of environments, right? right. Rural environments where someone's not gonna drive 12 hours to go to a hospital for a COVID test, they need something that's at the point of care. So right. there's no clear answer to your question there. It really depends on a lot of different kind of market trends and what you're trying to address. Yeah, but that's helpful just to think about the environment, the context, the geography. Speed has value. I mean, for certain mm. tests, I'm sure that knowing now is way better than knowing next week. Or yes, yes, sepsis out, is right? a great example of that. That is oh, like yeah. the number one thing right now in terms of speed to answer. Sepsis is critical. Um, there's other obvious areas with there as well. Brain injuries, clearly, you know, the seconds and minutes 
that people are going through that make a huge difference in their outcome. So yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, they, and obviously having a centralized laboratory offers you direct oversight of all of your samples, which is very advantageous. But it also brings out a lot of additional challenges. Right now, you have a ton of waste and material at one site, so there's more opportunity for contamination and cross, you know, cross-breeding samples and things like that. Uh, and people don't always necessarily know what to do with diagnostic information either. That is a big challenge in terms. Of, okay, great, you've you've identified a marker now exists, but what what is that now? How do you then inform the patient of a, or change their treatment based on that information? That's a big question mark with all these predictive technologies out there right now. Is okay, you have the information, but now what do you do with it? Right? Is it is it the right moral ethical choice to tell the patient that they may ultimately develop something due to a hereditary marker, or are you better off, you know, letting history run its course and the patient find out? When the challenge comes up, right? Do they want to live with that fear or not, right? And that's a big ethical question that exists in the market right now. And I think yeah. it's potentially addressed through some of those things you just brought up in terms of where you actually run the test and how that transmission of information is occurs. Yeah. I'm sort of imagining that in the future, one of the things on the very first intake sheet from a doctor will be like, if we find something that might affect you in the future, do you want to know now or wait to that, find out? That's actually a really good point. I didn't think about that, but yes, that would be a good way to address it. Let the patients choose for themselves. Do you want to know, right? Because, I mean, we've heard all sorts of stories in the last few years in terms of women understanding that they have a BRCA1 mutation because we know that that likely leads to breast cancer. Then, you know, do you go through a mastectomy because you think you may ultimately develop it or... Now you live the rest of your life with some issue because you chose to go through a treatment you didn't need, right? Right. Or you go through the rest of your life just waiting for bad, you know, the bad right. news to yeah, drop. Yeah, it's not healthy in itself. Exactly. Right. So your answer about, you know, different types of devices was very helpful. And in fact, you know, I think it sort of helped me picture um, the need for electrical engineering. So if anybody has a question, I'm going to let them email you after this because oh, sure. I think now I get it. Like we're talking like point of care devices. There's yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So actually you brought, let's go back to one thing in particular. You mentioned PCR earlier. Yeah. Do you and your audience know what PCR is? Yeah, I do. I'm assuming most of my audience does preliminaries chain reaction, amplifying small bits of DNA to incredible numbers to detect presence of pathogen or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the amplification part, do you, do you know what that actually entails? Like how do yeah. you do that? Heating and cooling rapidly. Okay. Thermocycling. Yes. Yes. So yeah. that is a perfect example of where electrical engineering comes in. So yeah. making those elements that can heat to a very specific temperature very quickly is a yes. lot of electrical engineering, right? So, but then ultimately you have to have the fluid movement, which is mechanical engineering. So that's really where you get the integration of these different disciplines. And that's, that's what I like about it. Yeah. Bring, Thank you for bringing that up. To get the right solution. Cause that, cool. uh, I mean, the last time I used the PCR machine was 25 years ago. Um, but it was it's pretty amazing even use one. <laughs> to watch how quickly they could cycle um, mm -hmm. you know, with multiple wells heating up at the same time and 
schooling, you know, that, that it's, it really is crazy in the real, the real challenge with thermocycling is actually the removal of heat. That's people don't think about that, but you have to cool just as fastly as you heat and yeah. heating things quickly is, is difficult, but it's not as much of a challenge as it is to remove energy from something. So actually cooling something down rapidly to a specific temperature is much more complicated electrically than heating it is. Yes. Not something you think of. Right. <laughs> We're going to do a whole episode on that. Now you got me curious because I was to the point, as you can tell, of taking it for granted, like, oh, it's a PCR test. Well, of course I know how it works and whatever, but I don't think about, and anybody can imagine that it's really easy to heat up your skillet on a stove. The metal conducts, it goes really fast. What do you do <laughs> to suck that heat out of there really exactly. quickly? Yeah. yeah, we're right. And where do, what do you do with it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and where does it go? Like, you know, yeah, this doesn't just appear disappear into the air. Yeah, exactly right. It. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of different uh, unique uh, innovations I would say in the last few years of how to approach that. Um, a lot of it has to just with reducing your volume. So obviously, if you make your sample smaller, if you can heat and cool it faster. I, I really want to avoid talking about Theranos here. So um, I feel like that's where that goes when you start talking about small volumes of blood samples. Um, and people, when you mention developing a test with blood, that's people immediately assume you're scamming them and you're Theranos. And that's that's not fair to, to the industry, to be honest with you. So yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of different ways that people are approaching that now. A big one in particular is nanobore sequencing. The so Oxford nanobore has made their entire kind of Market on that, um, there are other more uh, smaller, more unique companies as well, um, like Two Poor Guys, which is now, um, excuse me, I actually forget their new name. Um, but anyways, there are new companies that are developing nanopore sequencing technologies that can cycle much quicker and amplify as well. So there's new ways of doing it besides just the traditional put your tube in a thermocycler and run your PCR. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you got me thinking back. Tyler K. and I once made a video about nanopore sequencing. Okay. Um, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I mean, it was, I think, technically accurate and a good story at the time. It was when it was very new. Okay. But some of the comments on the video were like... Not ideal. <laughs> they They weren't happy. Well, one in particular worth mentioning is a company actually here in Providence called Napsys. They have a new electronic detector that they're using to rapidly um, amplify and detect pathogens. So nice. Oxford's kind of the well-known one. There are other innovators in that space as well. Um, so I would say it's a very emerging market. And the one that two poor guys that I worked with, which is no longer called two poor guys, their advantage was because they're using two pores. They didn't need the specificity. So one of the biggest challenges in nanopore technology is the actual manufacturing process. Controlling the diameter in the silicon wafer that creates that nanopore, there's very strict tolerance on that in order to get a reproducible test. So if you know anything about silicon wafer uh, manufacturing, it's a very expensive process. And um, producing reliably producing the same size nanopore is very difficult. So what this company did was they actually put a dual nanopore system in and they didn't need to be as specific because they have a backup uh, basically taking sample. Nice. Yeah, sorry. 
So you mentioned um, we started talking about predictive biomarkers and the, you know the idea that you might have a gene or something else that says you are susceptible to something or whatever. Um, what else have you seen that's interesting in the, the area of predictive diagnostics? Oh, I'm glad you brought this up. Um, I think the important part thing to start with here is as a global population, we have begun to put sensors in basically everything that we touch, right? We're just collecting vast amounts of data on every possible user metric imaginable. And now the value and challenge lies in now parsing through that data and identifying biological markers that can accurately predict the patient outcome. So based on some molecular signature, whether or not it's genetic, we've heard a lot about that, right? Or if it's um, protein folding or um, transcriptional regulators, there's lots of different types of molecular markers. Um, but you can parse through all this data and say that if you find this specific signature, there's a high likelihood that this will be the outcome for the patient. Um, and some of the very interesting ones that I'm personally involved with, we just mentioned was a non-surgical endometriosis test from Hera Biotech um, that's in development right now and should be launching soon. Um, I would say in a similar space to this, another one that I was not aware of is a lot of women experience severe side effects due to their contraception choice. And Dama Health is commercializing a test that will tell women what contraception they are compatible with before they try it. So completely avoiding that whole challenge. Um, again, another area that I was not aware of, but is a huge market opportunity and a challenge that unfortunately a lot of women go through. And now being able to tell them ahead of time, okay, you can use this contraception will be completely compatible with your biology. Obviously, there's a huge plus to that. Um, I would say last but not least, the one that I'm the most excited about is the technology that I helped develop or discover during my postdoctoral studies. Um, my best friend from grad school is now the CEO and co-founder of Miko Diagnostics in San Diego. And what Miko Diagnostics is, is it offers a test that will tell breast cancer patients whether or not their personal tumor will respond to antifibrotic therapy. Antifibrotics are a class of drugs that are currently available on the market. They're very low cost and they're highly tolerable. So breast cancer patients who have not responded to chemotherapy or immunotherapy, which we all know offers a very poor quality of life, you now offer them a new alternative that is non-toxic and low cost. It's not going to bankrupt them and their families to go through the treatment and potentially has even more opportunity to cure the patient um, without all those negative side effects and is currently in development looking to march and uh, launch in Q1 of 2025. So that is a technology I helped discover I'm very excited about and offers breast cancer patients potentially a lot of hope in the future. So those would yeah. be, I would say, kind of the top ones that I am personally involved with right now and find very exciting. Yeah, no, that's cool. Since you mentioned all the data, this has come up, I think, I don't know if it was on this particular podcast, um, but we have talked about, you know, remote diagnostics and health and even your voice signature mm. can be used as a diagnostic. Um, I had not heard conditions. that, but I, I believe it. Yeah, you know, whether it's, I mean, it, it 
could be for depression or anxiety or well, sure, perhaps other that makes or even sense. neurological. Yeah, um, and so you know, if you were open to it, I guess you. I don't know what you know. Maybe that has to be. You know, you have to opt into that. Hopefully, right. yeah, people are. Um, but that is a possibility. So, yeah, all kinds of data. Talk about um, the breakdown of barriers in academia. So when we talked before, you said a lot of this is happening or maybe happening because computer science, physics, engineering, biology are all finally talking to each other because now yes. data is everything. Essentially, right? Yeah, I, I've, I've been really fortunate to witness this in my career. There's been an overwhelming trend towards multidisciplinary biomedical research. Traditionally, these groups have remained very siloed, right? Clinicians, scientists, engineers, physicists, computer science. We've all kind of been in our own lane. And now, you know, people much smarter than myself have understood that we're not getting anywhere. We've dumped millions of dollars into, you know, cancer genetics research and cardiology research. And we're seeing very little benefit from that. And so what they started to do is create these academic centers of excellence and these core facilities where lots of different laboratories and departments can take advantage of core equipment. And what that's done is then now brought people out of computer science into the world of biology and medicine and is offering entirely new solutions. I would say some of those biomarker tests we just talked about are good examples of this, right? Those wouldn't have existed if you didn't have bioinformatics. Right. And computer science engineers getting involved in medicine. People who, you know, traditionally were not really interested in medicine or biology, but are extremely intelligent and adept in their particular field are now coming into this world and we're seeing massive advancements due to this. Yeah. That came up uh, in a conversation I had about drug discovery and computations mm -hmm. and getting the chemist to, to sit with the computational people. And vice versa, yes. and the that, computational people, right, right. Be, because computation is can be fast. Maybe it's not always. I'm sure. Mm. Right, right. And chemistry yeah. dynamic is slow. Simulations are, yes. <laughs> so right. how do you get those people to work together? Like, why does it take you so long to do the test I just told you to do? Like, it might take you know days or weeks, and then you give them the data, and the computation guys go, "Well, here it is," <laughs> or whatever. Just what, right. helping them it, understand their own workflows. Exactly. And it's much better than a biologist trying to learn computer science, which is how you used to have to do it. Yeah. Now a computer scientist can come in and apply what they're already doing in that discipline. And so it's a much better path. Right. And hopefully, you know, by learning how each other works, maybe they can optimize their combined workflow to, like, make, make both of them more efficient so no one's waiting around. Or, yes, yeah. I, I could not agree more. Net, I personally relocated to the University of Arizona to help my advisor build a brand new biophysics curriculum, specifically focused on what you're talking about right now, bringing physics into the world of biology and teaching that to students while they're undergraduates, which usually you don't really have any yeah. exposure to until postgraduate. And so now that's offering a lot of new career opportunities for students much earlier in their education and something that I personally went through and I'm really excited about. So we had a theoretical physics lab at the University of Connecticut. We uprooted it, moved it to the University of Arizona, 
opened a brand new biosafety level two laboratory within the physics building and started to get physics undergrad and graduate students that never cared about the life sciences whatsoever to now get in a laboratory and start growing bacteria and cells and things like that and opened up a whole new field and curriculum at that university and ultimately is going to create new jobs and open up new economic opportunities for the region, which I love that. So yeah, spot on. I mean, something I'm very wrong with. I'll tell you, I, I knew I was going to be a biology major from the time I was probably in freshman in high school, but I loved physics. Yeah. And if I could have done mm. both in some ways, it's hard to imagine. I don't even know enough to, to figure out what that would look like. But, and of course, when you're in a bio, biology lab and things don't grow or things go bad, you go, I wish I was a physicist. <laughs> right? So true. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you bring that up because really the term biophysics has gone through a lot of kind of evolution. I mean, biophysics originally in the eighties and nineties when was crystallography. So taking yeah. molecules and crystallizing them and understanding the structure, that was the origins of biophysics. The biophysics that I am involved with is more along the lines of biomechanics. So understanding the way that things move. So um, the way pathogens are acquired and transmitted, as well as obviously cancer metastasis are good examples of the biomechanics oh, wow. world that I work in. Yeah. There's a... Yeah. So depending on your perspective, biophysics can mean a lot of different things. So it's totally fair that you wouldn't really know. Um, and I And I agree with you. I knew I wanted to do something medical, biological at a very young age, I had absolutely no idea that product development was a viable career path until I was in it. I didn't even know that existed during my graduate studies or anything. I kind of fell into it and now absolutely love it. I think it's the most rewarding way to deliver back to the medical community is through product development. There's nothing more exciting than hearing from a clinician, you know, oh, I just saved my patient's life because you delivered this new device to me that I had never used before. That is just incredibly cool. And it's a very complex and difficult process to get through. So fortunately I've been through it thousands of times. Now I can return that value to my clients and help them through it. Yeah. Nice. All right. So, um, these things happen because someone gets an idea usually at a university, kind of like you were just talking about. So talk about the challenges for founders coming out of academia in terms of figuring out what their next steps are and getting their idea, like we started with, into a box, going to a clinician. Sure. Yep. Another excellent question, Chris. Um, academics offer a lot of advantages, right? Usually an academic works in a particular field because it's something they're passionate or interested in. And so that helps keep them focused and motivated, right? But unfortunately, the academic model forces individuals to take on all aspects of that project on their own. When you work in academia, you don't have access to matrixed organizations and external consultants. All these things that you have in industry that help supplement your efforts you get in the habit of doing all of that on your own. And oftentimes the founders are not really good at those other sides of the business outside of the technology, right? And that leads a lot of organizations to fail for new fault of their own. Um, this is actually a big debate right now is whether or not you can be considered a medical company if your founders and leaders are not actually clinicians themselves. Um, 
you know, so there's a lot of advantages, like I said, in terms of having people in the driver's seat, you know, C-suite level individuals that do have a scientific or clinical background offers you a lot of advantages because they don't have to ask everyone else around them what they're actually doing, right? They know. Um, but it also is a very hard lesson for them to let go of certain aspects of that and enable the team around them to take on some of their responsibilities. And truthfully, for an organization to succeed in industry, you have to go through that evolution. No individual can take on all aspects of a commercial diagnostic or any sort of medical technology on their own. You need yeah. to trust the team around you to be at least as good as you are at your role, if not better, and help them lift you up and tackle all those challenges as a team. And that is a, it sounds silly right now talking about it, but honestly, it's a very difficult lesson for academic founders to learn because it's not, they became successful by wearing all those hats. That's how they got to where they are. Right. And so to then, you know, step away from what made you successful is very difficult. Um, and ultimately something I've been fortunate with in my career is to be surrounded by a team that can, that can help with that. So you need to let go and realize, okay, the other person that's dealing with this aspect is going to do a better job than I would have anyway. So let's just let them run with it. And then, and then you'll be better off in the long run. And that's, Again, I, I keep, even as I'm talking about it, it sounds silly, but it's a really difficult lesson and one that is required for academics to be successful. Yeah. Um, so I was going to say, like, the academic journey is a very long one, right? And you become an owner of that thing. Um, and you, it's your baby. Yes. Michael Harmon, this has been really helpful to understand like the whole process of getting things commercialized, what it takes going backwards from where we just were, you know, to come out of academia with an idea and then find all the parts and pieces, expertise, different skill sets to put that together and and bring it to market. So I want to thank you very much for your time and your expertise. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. You're exactly right. I've seen far too many amazing technologies fail before they actually get to the patients. And that's what we're all here for, right? To help uh, yeah. patients. So being able to now be in a position where I can help drive that progression for academics and help their technologies actually get to where it matters. You can develop the most amazing technology in the world, but if it never leaves your laboratory, what's the point? So exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not an easy process. It sounds like it should be, but it's not. It's very complicated right. for a lot of different reasons and it's a good area to be involved with. So thank you for your time yeah. today, Chris. This is really awesome. My pleasure.